All right. Thank you very much, Angelique. Um, definitely, if you want to uh, learn more about Angelique's ministry, talk to her after service. Um, and I encourage you to keep her in your prayers. Um, she definitely appreciates our support in that way. Um, all right. So about seven months ago now, we pushed pause on our journey through the book of Revelation. We had made it through the first 11 chapters. And uh, at the time, I had every intention of going through the whole book, not stopping until we had gone through the whole thing. But when COVID hit, I thought, I don't know if this is the best book to be working through when we're meeting on live stream and these you know, circumstances are different. And it's kind of a, a very dense book for those conditions. So hit pause on it. But recently, I started to feel this tug to return to it and finish what we started. And I hope that's the Holy Spirit. <laughs> but uh, that's what we're going to do. Uh, so if you have your Bible, I encourage you to start making your way to Revelation chapter 12. Uh, if you have a Bible or if you have a Bible on your phone. And I'm really going to strongly encourage that more than I usually do because... Uh, It's a long passage, and there's a lot in there, and it's going to be hard to keep it all in your head. So um, in future weeks, again, I really encourage you to uh, bring your own Bible. Um, Now, if you're new here, or if your memory has faded of the first 11 chapters of the book, you might be a little concerned about jumping right in and into the middle of it. You might think you're going to have absolutely no idea what's going on. But here's the good news. Uh, Revelation is not just one vision. It's a series of visions. Now, it's often assumed that these visions tell a very chronological, linear story. And most people, or a lot of people, think it tells this chronological, linear story about what's going to happen in the future. Uh, But I don't think that's the way that we should think about Revelation. Um... These are symbolic visions that express things that are true, sometimes things that are true about the past, sometimes things that are true about the present, sometimes things that are true about the future, and sometimes things that are true about all three. And Revelation 12 introduces a new vision. Uh, It might be helpful to think of the visions in Revelation uh, kind of like one of those nights where you dream a lot. And, you know, you have a dream, and then you wake up, and you go back to sleep, and you have another dream. And for me, it's kind of helpful to think, John just woke up from a dream about the seven trumpets, and now he's falling back asleep, and we're we're seeing the next dream, which is Revelation 12. So, um, let's read it in a warning. It's going to be a little weird, uh, but just try to let it wash over you on the first reading, and then we'll go back. Uh, And we'll look at it more closely. Uh, So, but let's just uh, say a quick prayer before we get into it. Lord, we ask that right now uh, you would help us to focus our attention on your word and that your Holy Spirit would speak to us through it. Father, we pray that you would limit uh, the distractions from uh, the weather or uh, from the cars driving by. Uh, Just help us to attend to you. Uh, We give you thanks for this 
Beautiful morning. Uh, we thank you for all the ways that you're uh, working uh, through Angelique's ministry and getting to hear about that. And we pray that you would continue to uh, use her for your glory and um, continue to provide for all her needs in this uh, time of transition, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen. A great and wondrous sign appeared in heaven, a woman clothed with the sun, with the moon under her feet, and a crown of twelve stars on her head. She was pregnant and cried out in pain as she was about to give birth. Then another sign appeared in heaven, an enormous red dragon with seven heads and ten horns and seven crowns on his heads. His tail swept a third of the stars out of the sky and flung them to the earth. The dragon stood in front of the woman who was about to give birth so that he might devour her child the moment it was born. She gave birth to a son, a male child, who will rule all the nations with an iron scepter. And her child was snatched up to God and to his throne. The woman fled into the desert to a place prepared for her by God where she might be taken care of for 1,260 days. And there was war in heaven. Michael and his angels fought against the dragon, and the dragon and his angels fought back. But he was not strong enough, and they lost their place in heaven. The great dragon was hurled down, that ancient serpent called the devil, or Satan, who leads the whole world astray. He was hurled to the earth, and his angels with him. Then I heard a loud voice in heaven say, now have come the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Christ. For the accuser of our brothers who accuses them before our God day and night has been hurled down. They overcame him by the blood of the lamb and by the word of their testimony. They did not love their lives so much as to shrink from death. Therefore rejoice you heavens and you who dwell in them. But woe to the earth and the sea because the devil has gone down to you. He is filled with fury because he knows that his time is short. <coughs> when the dragon saw that he had been hurled to the earth, he pursued the woman who had given birth to the male child. The woman was given the two wings of a great eagle so that she might fly to the place prepared for her in the desert where she would be taken care of for time, times, and half a time out of the serpent's reach. Then from his mouth the serpent spewed water like a river to overtake the woman and sweep her away with the torrent. But the earth helped the woman by opening its mouth and swallowing the river that the dragon had spewed out of his mouth. Then the dragon was enraged at the woman and went off to make war against the rest of her offspring, those who obey God's commandments and hold to the testimony of Jesus. All right. <laughs> Wow, that's a lot to process, right? What in the world is going on here? Okay, this vision is a symbolic representation of the history of the world and more specifically of the history of the battle between good and evil. And it draws on a lot of symbols and uh, ideas from the Old Testament in order to do that. Uh, one well-known scholar, a man named Gregory Beale, has uh, done a lot of work, a lot of writing on Revelation. And he says that if you look at each verse in the book of Revelation, 68% of them contain a reference to the Old Testament. 
So more than two-thirds of Revelation makes references to the Old Testament. And there's a bunch of those references in this passage. And we're not going to be able to identify all of them right now. I'm not even going to attempt that. Uh, But what I want us to realize is the more we know about the Old Testament, the more we're able to appreciate this vision. Um, Sometimes people have this idea that the further away we get from when Revelation was written and from knowing the culture that it came out of, then the more we're going to understand it. You know, because people think, oh, we're we're moving towards the end times, and as we get towards the end times, then we'll be able to understand these symbols. I say, no, 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 it's actually the reverse. If you really want to understand what's going on, in Revelation, you need to be familiar with the cultural context it was written in. You need to know the Old Testament, okay? So, we've got two main figures in the vision, right? A woman and a red dragon. So first, let's talk about the woman. She is described as great and wondrous, a great and wondrous sign. She's clothed with the sun. She has the moon under her feet. She has a crown of 12 stars on her head, and she's pregnant. She's crying out in pain as she's giving birth, and she gives birth to a male child who will rule with an iron scepter. And this child is snatched up to God and his throne. Now, one thing we should all be able to agree on is that the child represents Jesus, right? Uh, We're told that he will rule all the nations with an iron scepter. That phrasing comes right out of Psalm 2, which was a psalm that the Jews recognized as being messianic. It was a prophecy about the coming uh, Messiah. And, of course, it's even more clear that this child is Jesus when we read the next part of verse 5, which says her child was snatched up to God and to his throne. So this child, who is destined to rule the world, is removed from the earth. And that is clearly a reference to what happened to Jesus after his resurrection, right? He ascended to heaven. As we say in the Apostles' Creed, he ascended to heaven and is seated at the right hand of the Father. So, if the child in the vision is Jesus, probably a natural question is, does the woman represent Mary? And my answer to that is yes, but not just Mary. Okay, it's better to think of the woman as representing the entire history of Israel, the people of God. Because notice the woman is described as wearing a crown uh, with 12 stars on her head. Those 12 stars are probably an allusion to the 12 tribes of Israel. Uh, God determined not only that the Messiah would be born through Mary, but that he would come into the world through the nation of Israel. Through the nation of Israel, the whole world would be blessed. And I suspect that the woman crying out in pains of labor is supposed to represent that Israel has had this long and tumultuous history. So if you know the history of Israel, uh, you know it's been a messy road on the way to the Messiah's birth. Uh, There has been a lot of violence. There has been a lot of idolatry. There's enslavement. There's destruction of the temple. There's exile. Uh, The Messiah eventually comes, but there's a really rough road on the way to getting there. Okay, so that's the first major figure, the woman. Let's look at the second one, the dragon, the red dragon. 
Now, fortunately, with this one, we don't have to speculate because the text clearly tells us in verse 9, the dragon represents the ancient serpent. That's a reference all the way back to uh, Genesis chapter 3. The ancient serpent called the devil or Satan who leads the whole world astray. Now, notice in verse 4, uh, we're told that the dragon's tail sweeps a third of the stars out of the sky and, and hurls them down to earth. And what most commentators think, and I'm inclined to agree with them, is that this represents the angels who followed Satan in rebelling against God uh, in primeval history. Uh, because stars are often associated with angels in the ancient world. Uh, and so the image of the dragon's tail sweeping them away represents Satan luring uh, certain angels to rebel against God. So, big picture here. This vision is telling us that throughout history, there have been forces at work, unseen spiritual agents, who have been trying to undermine God's plan. Now, this reminds me, two weeks ago, we looked at the parable of the weeds. Who remembers this? Hopefully, some of you remember this. Um, and hopefully, you remember that one of the points in that parable is that we are not supposed to blame God for the brokenness of the world. And we're not just supposed to blame people for the brokenness of the world either. We're supposed to recognize that there are other agents at work. Uh, remember in the parable, the master uh, sows seed in his field. He sows wheat. But then someone comes along and sows weeds among the wheat. And this is representative of the fact that there is evil in creation. And in the parable, uh, the master's servants come to him and they say, why is your field all messed up? Why is it full of weeds? Just as we might ask God, why is there all this evil in your creation? Why is it, why is it a mess? And the master's answer in the parable is very simple. He just says, an enemy did this. An enemy did this. And so in this vision, we are seeing a symbolic representation of that enemy. This is the sower of the weeds. This is the ancient serpent in the garden. This is the one who seeks to lead the whole world astray. And God wants us to be aware that he is real and that he targets us. And whether we like it or not, we are in a spiritual war. That's what this vision is saying. Now, I know there's a whole bunch of details in this vision that might be raising a bunch of questions for you. They're hard to interpret. Um, I can't handle all of them this morning. There's no way. Um, but I do want to address a few of them, and I'm going to try to be brief here. Um, so some of the questions that you might have, some of the questions that I have when I read this is, uh, why does the woman go into the desert? What is the desert? Uh, why is she taken care of for 1,260 days? Uh, what does it mean that she is cared for for time, times, and half a time? What is that? Uh, what does it mean that the dragon spews water like a river at her? And what does it mean that the earth opens up and swallows that river? 
What in the world is all that? Well, okay, remember, first rule of interpreting Revelation. This is what I started almost every sermon with uh, when we were doing this in the past. First rule, Revelation is a highly symbolic book. Highly symbolic. And that means that John's visions are not like video recordings from heaven, if you could get a video recording from heaven. That's not what this is. It's, it's also not a video recording of the future. It's not like that. These are more like Holy Spirit-inspired dreams. Okay? So keep that in mind. Now, I think the key to appreciating this Holy Spirit-inspired dream is remembering the story of the Exodus. The story of the Exodus. Possibly the most formative event in Israel's history. So remember, Israel was enslaved in Egypt for... <laughs> Israel was enslaved in Egypt for uh, 400 years. And then God exited the Israelites from that enslavement. That's why this is called the Exodus. And the climax of the Exodus was when the Israelites walked through the miraculously parted Red Sea, right? And then when the, their Egyptian pursuers were coming after them, the waters came back and crashed over them. That was the climax of the Exodus. But then what happened after that victory, after that Exodus? What happened was that the Israelites spent a very long time wandering in the desert. Wandering in the desert. And this is why the imagery of the desert is significant. They wandered in the desert until they were led to the promised land. And during that time, God miraculously provided for them. He had uh, something that they could eat to show up on the ground. It's called manna. Uh, he miraculously provided during that time. It was a challenging time, uh, but God gave them what they needed. And so the imagery of being taken away to the desert and cared for there is recalling the Exodus. And so what this vision is saying is something like the Exodus has happened again. You might even say the Exodus was foreshadowing this greater Exodus that would happen in the future. Jesus' resurrection is like that glorious moment when the waters parted and then they came crashing back down uh, on the enemies of God. And just like the Exodus, after that victory, a desert time has come. What you might call an in-between time. Uh, it's a time between victory and the promised land. It's a time uh, between uh, Jesus conquering death and us experiencing heaven. It's a time between Jesus' victory over the devil and the full manifestation of the kingdom of God. And so that's what I believe this uh, vision uh, of the desert is supposed to represent. It's telling us that between Jesus' uh, it's saying that after Jesus' resurrection and ascension, the followers of Jesus are going to be in an in-between time just like the Israelites wandering in the desert. And during that time, God is going to protect, provide, and sustain his people. 
Now, what about the amount of time in the desert? What is that about, right? Uh, in verse 6, it's described as 1,260 days. And in verse 14, it's described as time, times, and half a time. First of all, both of those verses are referring to the same amount of time. It's just two different ways of saying it. And both of them are, they're saying three and a half years. Three and a half years. Um, because the Jewish calendar was 360 days. You divide 1,260 days by 360, you get three and a half years. And then time times and half a time is like saying one plus two plus one half. Three and a half. So they're both the same thing. And you might remember that when we did Revelation back in the winter, I said that the, that number three and a half is significant. It came up a bunch of times in a previous passage, too. And what I want to suggest is that this number, three and a half, is not a literal amount of time. It's not talking about a duration of time. It is a symbol for a quality of time. Um, now, why do I say that? Well, seven is a very important number in the Bible, right? Seven represents perfection. Uh, seven is the number of days in a Sabbath cycle. Three and a half is exactly half of seven. So three and a half represents the in-between time, the desert time. You're on the way to the promised land, but you're not there yet. See what I mean? Hopefully, hopefully that makes some sense, okay? So when John says that the woman went into the desert for three and a half years, what he's saying is the people of God, after Jesus' resurrection, are in this in-between time. Uh, it is a time of trial. Things are not yet as they should be. Uh, we have not reached the promised land yet. But God is with us, and he will protect, provide, and sustain. Now, for me, the most confusing part of this is verses 15 through 17. Uh, the dragon pursues the woman in the desert and spews water like a river at her, but the earth opens its mouth and swallows the river. What in the world? Now, just to be clear, I don't think this is describing a literal event where there's going to be a flood and, and the earth opening up. Um, what I think this is saying is that Satan, in this in-between time between Jesus' resurrection and the fulfillment of the kingdom of God, in the in-between time, the devil is going to be working overtime aggressively to attack God's people. And that torrent of water, I believe, represents a torrent of lies and accusations and attacks and persecutions that the dragon is going to bring against God's people. And, of course, the main point here is that he's not going to be successful. Now... Once again, I think that in order to really appreciate the imagery here, we have to remember the Exodus. Because remember, when the Exodus occurred, the Egyptians were drowned in a torrent of water. Right? And so here, what we see is the devil is attempting to do uh, what God did. 
to the Egyptians. But just as nature was on God's side in the parting of the Red Sea, uh, even nature is going to be on God's side in the devil's future attacks on God's people. Um, so, what this part of the vision is suggesting is that the devil is going to attempt to reverse the new exodus that Jesus has created. He's going to attempt to reverse the new exodus that Jesus has created. Jesus' resurrection has created this, this exodus for us out of the slavery of sin, out of the slavery of death, out of the slavery of captivity to the devil. And the devil is going to try to undo that exodus that has been done by Jesus' death and resurrection. But try as he may, he is not going to be able to undo it. Just as the Egyptians pursuing the Israelites were not able to undo what was going on there, you know, with the parting of the Red Sea. So that's what I think this imagery is intended to impress on us, and especially on the first century Jewish audience. Now, I know this is all confusing. Uh, maybe you feel like some of this is going over your head. But even if you're having trouble understanding, I hope that you're getting a sense of the depth and the richness of the Bible and of this vision. Um, and even if you don't understand everything that it's saying, the big picture is, is clear, right? The big picture is we are in a spiritual war. There is an enemy who seeks to destroy us. We're in this in-between time, but God is with us. And if we stick with him, our victory is sure. Now, to finish up, I want to turn our attention uh, to this subject of spiritual war. Look at verse 10 again. About halfway through the verse, it says, The accuser of our brothers, who accuses them before our God, day and night, has been hurled down. They overcame him by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of their testimony. They did not love their lives so much as to shrink from death. And I want us to notice that word accuser, accuser. In this in-between time between Jesus' resurrection uh, and the fulfillment of the kingdom of God, in this time of trial, this desert time, one of the devil's primary strategies against us is accusation. And the, the word here actually implies a courtroom setting where the devil is like a prosecutor and he's arguing to God, the judge, that you should be condemned. Uh, that God should lock you up and throw away the key. So one of the ways that the spiritual war we're in manifests itself is through that little voice in your head that says things like, you are not worthwhile. You're a failure. You're ugly. You're stupid. The world would be better off without you. God doesn't care about you. God could never forgive you. If your thoughts ever trend in that direction, it's important to recognize none of that is the voice of God. 
That's the voice of the accuser. It's a, it's a form of spiritual warfare. And I want to encourage you to recognize that. And if you hear those sorts of thoughts, not to listen to them. Don't believe them. Don't fall for that ancient serpent's hiss. So many of the problems in the world come from people believing what the accuser says. I really believe that. And the accuser affects us in subtle ways, too. I mean, you, know, you might not be the kind of person who thinks, oh, God could never love me. I'm just a worthless piece of garbage. You might not be the kind of person who consciously thinks that. But, for example, you might be the kind of person who thinks, I can't be wrong about anything. I can't be wrong. Uh, you, might not, you might be the kind of person who can never tolerate anybody disagreeing with you about anything. Uh, you might be the kind of person who cannot stand to be exposed to information that contradicts what you already think about something. And no matter how much reasonable information you're presented with, you just can't hear it. Why? Why might that be? Could it be because deep down, you feel like if I'm not right, I have no pride. I have no sense of value. If I'm not right, I'm not worthwhile. If deep down that's the way we're thinking, we are embracing the accuser's accusations, and that has consequences in our relationships, right? And it has consequences in the way we see things, right? It cuts us off from the truth. When we allow our pride to shape our view of the world rather than facts, that has consequences, dangerous consequences. And it can lead to bad decisions. And it can lead us to be argumentative and annoying and, and hard to be around. And I think that often the root of that behavior is believing the accuser's accusations. You know, another subtle way that the accuser works is by convincing us that we have to be above average in things in order to uh, feel good about ourselves. You know, that we have to be smarter than most people in order to feel good about ourselves or, or richer than most people or better looking than most people. And if we're not, then we don't feel whole and complete and happy about ourselves. The accuser says, if you are not above average, you are not worthwhile. Or if you're not the best, then you're not worthwhile. And when we think that way, it can lead to all kind of, kinds of stress and anxiety and cruelty to each other. The accuser is always creating a fear that we don't matter. And for some people, that leads to anxiety and really low self-esteem. And to other people, it leads to arrogance and narcissism. It can work both ways. But both extremes are rooted in this fear that we don't matter, that we're not really valuable, we're not really worthwhile. And the root of it is the accuser's accusations in our hearts. So how do we overcome the accuser's voice? How do we fight 
in this spiritual war. And the key, this says, is the blood of the Lamb. They overcame by the blood of the Lamb. In other words, the sacrifice of Jesus Christ is where we begin uh, to overcome. Because what does the sacrifice of Jesus reveal? Right? It reveals that our Creator values us. It reveals that our Creator values us so much that He humbled Himself, that He became a human being and He suffered and died on a cross. He values us so much that He would rather take the consequences of our sin upon Himself than see us be destroyed. The accuser says, you're not worthwhile. But Jesus says, you are important to me. And it doesn't matter whether you're above average IQ or above average uh, in, in physical attractiveness or above average in any way. You're important to me. I value you. I gave my life on a cross so that we could be reconciled and so that you could be free from that dragon, that ancient serpent, that accuser who sows chaos in the world and in your heart. When we really listen to Jesus' voice rather than the accusers, we realize, I really don't need to be right about everything. I, I don't need to be above average in every respect. I don't need to dwell in self-hatred. I just need to recognize that I am beloved by my creator. He is with me in the desert and he is leading me to the promised land. Let's pray. Lord, I thank you for this reminder this morning that we are in a spiritual war and Lord I pray that you'd give us wisdom I pray that you give us wisdom to discern uh, the voice of the, the accuser from your voice Lord I pray if any of us have been paying too much attention to the accusers voice that you would give us strength to replace it with the blood of the lamb to remind ourselves to remember uh, the revelation of your love and your value of us through Jesus on the cross. And Lord, uh, I pray that we would, we would realize the beauty and the depth of the, the story of the Bible, uh, that we are in a new exodus. We are in this in-between time. We're in a desert time. But you are going to be faithful. You are going to provide. You are going to sustain to sustain us. So help us not to grow weary. Help us not to, to grow tired. Help us not to give up. But to keep trusting you and keep following you. However much Satan may spew his torrent at us. In Jesus' name, amen.